This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter. Welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I am your host, Aaron Bronstetter, and Francis Ngannou in what is perhaps the worst-kept secret in mixed martial arts is now a member of the PFL roster. Big news, of course, to start off our week here in mixed martial arts land. Francis Ngannou signed a massive deal with the PFL. It's really a groundbreaking deal and probably the biggest mixed martial arts free agent signing in the history of the sport. We'll dive into that big time, in depth. We'll also recap this past weekend's UFC Fight Night card featuring a main event between Jairzinho Rosenstroik and Jailton Almeida. We'll preview this weekend's UFC Fight Night card headlined by Mackenzie Dern versus Angela Hill. But of course, we must start off with Francis Ngannou and what that means to the overall landscape of mixed martial arts. So 6 a.m. Eastern Time, a press release goes out from the PFL announcing their partnership not really a signing. They, they don't call it a signing. They call it a partnership with Francis Ngannou because for all intents and purposes, it, it is a strategic partnership. It's a partnership where he is going to take on multiple roles within the promotion in addition to, of course, fighting for the promotion. So let's break down some of those details. Um, first and foremost, it looks like he is not going to be fighting until mid-2024. He just did an interview with Ariel Hawani where he talked about March and April as targets. But the press release that came out today via the PFL says mid-2024 for Francis Ngannou to compete in the PFL. His contract allows him to compete in sports outside of mixed martial arts. He's exclusive for mixed martial arts to the PFL, but he is allowed to seek opportunities to compete in boxing, which I know is a big deal for him in terms of his uh, UFC negotiations. And uh, some further points from uh, John Nash of Bloody Elbow that it's either a two or three fight deal. I think perhaps the third fight might be triggered by something in the second fight, but it's it says uh, only two or three fights. It guarantees a high seven-figure purse for each fight, a split of the event's net profits, uh, which is part of the PFL's structure for their super fight division, which are their pay-per-view fights where the headliners get equity in the net profits from the uh, the events and uh, the pay-per-view. Uh, a signing bonus or salary to serve as a brand ambassador for PFL. So that, that's important, and we'll touch on why a little bit later on. The right to have his own sponsors in the cage. So um, I'm not sure if that means on the actual cage surface itself. He hasn't really... I don't believe he's outlined that just yet, but he will have his own sponsors uh, on his shorts as well, which I think PFL fighters in general are allowed to have as long as they're approved by the uh, PFL. There's a no champions clause or any sort of automatic extensions that uh, trigger from him fighting in the PFL, which I, I don't think is that big of a deal because it says no champions clause, but there aren't really champions per se in the PFL. It's more like annual tournament winners are kind of like the de facto champions until the next tournament. So they're still considered to be the champions, but once the year resets, it seems like the title's up for grabs once again. Um, a minimum salary for his opponent. John S. Natch said uh, possibly as high as $1 million, but in two separate interviews, I, actually I think three separate 
interviews that uh, Francis Ngannou had done, one for his own YouTube channel, one for the, the Zone MMA show, and one with Ariel Helwani. He says that his opponent will make a base salary of $2 million, a minimum base salary of $2 million, which means that if they, you know, they're also going to get a share of the pay-per-view in the super fight division, and they could even negotiate a higher salary if it was determined to be worth their while. Um, a couple notes from that other interview with the Zone. Um, his deal was verbally agreed upon two months ago, but uh, just got signed in recent days. He will also be serving, uh, one, one thing I should mention from the original press release, he will be serving as a uh, minority equity holder in PFL Africa and will help build PFL Africa. And he's also, I'm going to just uh, pull up, I just want to make sure I get the wording correct on this and um, make sure that I, I get the uh, all of the correct uh, information out to you. For PFL Africa, he is going to be uh, playing a big role in that. And he said that was really important to him in terms of uh, his contributions to the PFL. And uh, the expansion to Africa, according to the New York Times, is scheduled to start in 2024, hoping to have events take place there as of 2025. And Francis says uh, he sees Cameroon, Nigeria, Senegal, and South Africa as early targets for events there. And Francis is also going to be sitting on an kind of athlete's advisory board as well to make sure that uh, the fighters are represented in um, ongoing discussions regarding the PFL. Now, in terms of that zone interview, as I mentioned, uh, the deal had been agreed upon verbally for about two months. He may have a tune-up fight in boxing in 2023. So if he is going to compete this year, it will likely be in boxing. I'm not sure what a tune-up fight looks like for somebody who isn't a boxer. I'm not exactly sure what that means. But uh, he hopes to face Deontay Wilder in 2024 and has been in talks with uh, the money team in terms of, like Floyd Mayweather's money team in terms of promotion in boxing. He believes that the winner of the PFL heavyweight tournament will be a candidate for his first opponent in the PFL. And uh, basically said if it was up to him, his next opponent would be in boxing against Tyson Fury or Deontay Wilder. Wilder. Um, none of that is clear just yet in terms of what his boxing future is. But the fact that he has a boxing future, I think, is uh, another one of the reasons why he left the, uh, the UFC to begin with. Now, when I look at this deal, I think there are a lot of questions here. And first and foremost... I think it's a, a great deal for Francis. I mean, you look at what he was after from the UFC, all of the things that he was looking for, a seat at the table, the ability to compete in boxing, the things that the UFC just would not offer him. And understandably so. I mean, the UFC have never really offered anybody a contract that includes those sort of things built into them. We, we know that they've, of course, allowed Conor McGregor to box against Floyd Mayweather as like kind of a one-time thing. But they don't really have these open-ended contracts that allow people to compete for other sporting entities. Even like the WWE, which might change, of course, now after the merger, but they don't really have an open-door policy when it comes to competing in, in other sort of uh, combat sports arenas. So those are probably non-starters in terms of the negotiations with, with uh, Francis. But the big question I have is questions that we can't really answer right now, which is how viable is the PFL going forward in terms of 
being a pay-per-view player, you know, they did one pay-per-view last year and by all accounts, it didn't do very well. They're trying to, they said they were going to launch the Superfight division this year. It's currently May. We haven't heard a thing about it in terms of Superfight pay-per-views. Kayla Harrison was supposed to fight on two of them this year. Zero have been announced. So she might end up getting paid out for those without even competing in them. That, those, I think, are the big questions. Or, you know, what, what is the, the timetable here? Is this going to be successful? Are they going to be able to launch this and have success without Francis as a headliner as well? Who else are they planning on bringing in? They did sign, of course, Jake Paul back in January to a, a deal where he would inevitably compete in mixed martial arts. According to a conversation I had with Don Davis back in January, they're looking at early 2024 for the MMA debut of Jake Paul. So I think the big questions are ones that can't really be answered right now. How, how big can PFL Africa be? Are they able to even launch PFL Africa? Because we saw a tweet that came out today from a LinkedIn post from the former ownership of the PFL, the World Series of Fighting ownership, saying that they had the rights in Africa. So is there legislation involved? There are just a lot of loose ends that I don't think we can really tie up right now, where we need to see exactly where the PFL is at, really in two years. I think that we won't really know how great this deal is for another two years. But one important thing that John Nash mentioned was that Francis Ngannou already has kind of a signing bonus or potentially salary, some sort of money up front, which I think is important to note because anybody who's saying, well, he's not going to make anything, he's not going to, what if these fights don't happen? I mean, first off, I'm sure that somewhere in the contract, it probably states that should these fights not happen, he's probably going to get paid anyways. I mean, that's probably how it goes. Now, if they go bankrupt altogether, which again, there's nothing right now that would indicate that they're even considering being on the brink of bankruptcy or anything along those lines. Their, their rounds of equity funding have been large every time they do it. So I'm sure that the PFL are not thinking about that at all. In fact, there have been rumors that the PFL might be interested in buying Bellator. So there's money. There's money to be spent here. I don't think that they would sign Francis Ngannou if they didn't think that they would be able to uphold their side of the deal. So based on that, if you were to look at it and say, this deal is going to be held up exactly as it's laid out, while I think there are still some murky details where we don't really know exactly what's happening, which, of course, in an incentive-laden contract, that's often the case, I still think that Francis got absolutely everything that he was looking for in a deal. He got a seat at the table, he got the ability to box, got an eight-figure deal per fight. He's getting other fighters paid. His opponent has a, mi- a minimum base salary, according to Francis. So all of the different boxes that he wanted checked are checked by the PFL. So Francis did great here. Now, the weird thing about this is when I point this out online and I say, you know, everybody who's accusing, who is accusing Francis of fumbling the bag, you can't really say that today. If you say that today there's probably nothing he could have announced that would have made you feel otherwise. Because he still has the money that he can get from boxing potentially as well, right? Like this is just one half of what we might be seeing from Francis going forward. If Francis is able to sign a deal in boxing as well and face a big name, like we, we could be talking double this amount. Francis has done great here. But I have all these people saying, oh, you're anti-UFC, you must hate the UFC. I'm not even talking about the UFC today. I'm talking just about Francis. But if you want to talk about the UFC side of things, the UFC did well here too. 
<laughs> like, I've pointed this out before. If you break it down from a dollars and cents standpoint, we all know that John Jones versus Francis Ngannou is a bigger fight. But does a fight between John Jones and Francis Ngannou actually make more money for the UFC than the fight between Jones and Cyril Ghosn did? Now, that's going to be a weird thing to ask because people will say, of course it would. Why, why would you say otherwise? Well, let's look at the numbers here. Because both Dana White and Francis Ngannou have said that there was, an, I think, an $8 million offer for Francis. It was going to make him the highest paid heavyweight in UFC history had he fought John Jones. So let's say that figure is in the ballpark of $8 million. How much do you think Surreal Gone made to fight John Jones? Because if I had to guess, pure guess, probably was making 750 and 750 then some pay-per-view points probably, or even possibly got pay-per-view points for this, that as well. I don't know how many pay-per-views it sold. But other reports have said that the money that the UFC gets per pay-per-view is a flat rate from ESPN. So even if a pay-per-view does complete gangbusters, it's ESPN that's getting that money because they're the distributor of the pay-per-views. I'm sure that, I'm sure the, that the UFC gets money from um, commercial sales of pay-per-views, international distribution of pay-per-views. They still want the pay-per-views to excel. Don't get me wrong. But apparently the Jones and, and France, and uh, sorry, Surreal Gone fight did really well in pay-per-view. It did a gate of $12 million, which is one of the highest gates that they've ever done at T-Mobile Arena. $12 million. So if Surreal Gone made seven fifty for that fight, again, hypothetical, but that's seemingly is the ballpark in which he, he made for that fight is six figures. Maybe low seven figures. That's the estimates that I've seen. I, I don't know this for a fact. But if you were to take $7 million additional dollars out of that gate, does the UFC actually make more money from having... Like, how much more could that gate have been? If, if it's already a top three or four gate in T-Mobile history... Let's take a look here. I just, I just want to see the, the UFC highest gates. Let's just see if we can find some numbers here in terms of gate. I'm just trying to pull this up. Let's just say highest gate, John Jones, because that was the fourth highest gate, I believe. So the gate figure was, like I said, $12.15 million, which was, yeah, the fourth highest gate, sorry, in UFC history. So not, not in T-Mobile history, in, in UFC history. How much higher could that gate have been? if it was Francis and John Jones, an extra million. So the UFC does well here too. Not to mention that John Jones then beats Cyril Gaon in absolutely dominant fashion, where it took Francis five full rounds to beat Cyril Gaon. And then the average Joe UFC fan now looks at it and says, well, John Jones would have mopped the floor with Francis. He would have beaten Francis in the first round. Of course, anybody who knows what they're talking about knows that's likely not true. But again, if you're talking about the average fan here, the average fan's takeaway is that John Jones would have been the, heavy, the heavyweight champion anyways. They don't really give Ngannou any credit because Ngannou's left, right? So we, ha we don't really know how that fight would have played out. We have no idea. But because John, John was so dominant against Cyril Gaon, a guy who Francis couldn't put away, the conversation shifts, shifts towards John Jones being the, the best heavyweight. That's exactly what the UFC want. The UFC want the average fan to forget Francis. 
and they want to make money regardless, like of Francis leaving. They want to maximize their the amount of money that they're going to make for these events. So I would argue that if you look at this split, Francis going his own way, UFC saying, good luck, you know, we're not going to re-sign you. It worked out great for both parties. And that's okay. We don't need to go out and say, hey, the, you know, Dana and the UFC, yeah, they showed Francis. Or, oh, yeah, Francis made a ton of money. He showed the UFC. It doesn't need to be that way, right? Like, you can still look at this objectively and say, both of these parties made out well. Francis is making big money now in the PFL. He's got the freedom that he was looking for. He gets to negotiate boxing. And the UFC have John Jones as their heavyweight champion, the greatest of all time. Do you think that the next John Jones event is going to be people are going to say, oh, well, it's not Francis fighting. I'm not going to buy that. No chance. So both parties walk away here happy. Nobody's getting hurt in this situation. So we don't need to pick a side here. We don't need to have people come out and say like, yeah, you know, this is, this is a clear W for Francis or a clear W for the UFC. It doesn't make a difference. If both of them are happy and it does good things for the mixed martial arts space and it potentially gives fighters the ability to have a little bit, you know, more control over their career or say over where they go or, you know, get a, a bigger piece of the pie, like that's what should matter to the fans. We don't need to be divisive here or divisive, rather, and pick a side and say, oh, you know, so-and-so got the better of this. It doesn't make a difference. If Francis is happy today, and he likes what he got, and it's, again, on paper looks phenomenal for him, and the UFC are continuing, they've got all these new up-and-coming heavyweights. We saw Jailton Almeida this past weekend. You've got Sergey Pavlovich, who had that win over Blades recently. John Jones is the champion. They're potentially going to make a, a massive fight between Jones and Stipe. There's no losers here, and that's okay. Like we we should be happy about that. Not try to find a way to like diminish either side. So that's the way I look at this. Is like I'm thrilled for Francis. I think a lot of people should be thrilled for Francis. Heck, the UFC should be thrilled for Francis. Francis is getting what he was after, something that the UFC couldn't provide or wouldn't provide. So why do we need to have to make this about like oh who who gets the best here? Really, the PFL does well here too, but now it's a show-me time for the PFL. Show me that you're going to take this big signing and turn it into something bigger. That's the part that I'm most interested in here, is what is the PFL going to do to continue this momentum? To show that having Francis on the roster is going to be beneficial to them. That they can run a viable pay-per-view business. Like Those are all of the unanswered questions in my mind right now. And those are the things that I really want to see. But if I'm looking at this from the perspective of Francis and Ganyu, I'm thrilled. Like Francis should be thrilled. And we should all be thrilled for him. If we really care about the fighters and we want to see, see what's best for them, then we should be thrilled for him. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're cheering for the UFC to fail if you believe that Francis did well. If other fighters are able to bring their careers to a point where Francis's career was, where you're a champion and you've got all this clout and you have all of this momentum in your career and you want to take that and parlay it into more, we should be happy for that. 
like these these fighters put their lives on the line really every single week their their long-term health on the line for the entertainment of the fans of the sport and would we like like would i like to see them get paid more absolutely i think that they all deserve more money so I'm excited for Francis. I think it's a great opportunity for him. I'm excited to see who they put against him. And I think it's actually a stroke of brilliance that he's not going to fight until the middle of 2024. Because now they're talking about this $2 million purse thing. And if you're a heavyweight, and you are potentially coming up on free agency, I mean, you're going to get a $2 million base contract to fight Francis Ngannou? Like, I don't know how many more fights Sergey Pavlovich has on his deal, or Jelton Almeida has on his deal, or, you know... Tom Aspinall has on his deal. I don't know. I don't know how restrictive John Jones's contract is. I know it's like a seven-fight deal, though, so I don't think he's getting out of that anytime soon. But I think that if you're a heavyweight right now and you're good, if you're like an Anatoly Malikin, Arjun Buller, anybody who's got any sort of accolades outside of the UFC, Ryan Bader, Linton Vassell, whoever they can find, Whoever the best possible candidate is, you know, you're going to make a lot of money. And I think that that's great. And you're going to fight a 38-year-old Francis Ngannou. Who you could potentially beat. So I, I think this is a big win for the sport overall. Like I think that overall, the UFC needs competition to, to improve. They need a viable number two. Like, if the PFL is, in fact, in talks to buy Bellator, and I, I have not heard this from any sort of official sources, I just see some reports here and there that they're in, in the mix. If they end up buying Bellator and they get all of that talent, and they can continue a strategic partnership with Ryzen, like, we should be happy that the future is bright for MMA and that there's going to be another potential promotion that is doing big things. So let's wait and see. Let's take a wait and see approach to all of this, really. Because there are so many looming questions. And, you know, a lot of this on paper is, is you know, looks really nice for Francis Ngannou. You've got, like, all of these positions and, you know, PFL Africa and all this stuff is great. But we don't really know exactly what it's going to manifest into. And I think that's where... We have to pump the brakes a little bit on this and just say, like, if if all of the stuff that Francis is getting that's been reported, like, if, if Francis ends up getting everything that's being reported here, this is a massive victory for him. So let's wait and see how it plays out before we make these judgments again. Like everybody was making judgments about Francis before he signed, saying, you know, he fumbled the bag and he's got nowhere to go and he's going to end up with nothing. And then you see this come out and then... A lot of those same people are like, oh, he fumbled the bag. And, you know, if he stayed with the UFC, he'd make the same amount of money. And Like, wait. Like, we don't, we don't even know what Francis is doing for boxing yet. Like, if there's a big boxing deal on the horizon for him, then what? Then what are you going to say? If he ends up making another seven-figure purse or eight-figure purse to box somebody. Then what? Right? Like, let's just pump the brakes a little bit. Let's wait and see. Let's... Let it play out. Let the process play itself out and see what happens when the dust settles. Because in three years, the PFL could be a complete afterthought. Or in three years, the PFL could be a legitimate secondary competitor to the UFC. Which, in my opinion, 
I'm not sure if we're going to see a secondary competitor to the UFC that is, is a real legitimate challenge for them for some time. The gap that they have between them and whatever the next biggest promotion is, is a chasm. Like, it's the UFC and everybody else. If you're looking at global mixed martial arts numbers. So I don't think that there's any reason for us to rush into making a judgment about this other than to say, hey, if this all comes together, like, this is great news for Francis and great news for the sport. Because we might have another player in MMA. And I think that's great. And if you look at how much, you know, another thing that came of this was that Don Davis came out and said they're looking to kind of build a Champions League in MMA where they're going to have like the PFL Europe, maybe PFL Brazil, PFL Asia, PFL Africa, maybe PFL Canada, who knows? If they're going to build that, it's just going to create more and more opportunities for, for fighters to do their thing. There are so many up-and-coming fighters right now. In the UFC, even though they have a pretty big ro roster of about 700 fighters, there are still more fighters out there that need places to hone their craft. And if we're going to see this kind of growth of this sport globally, like that, that's going to make this sport so much bigger. And we should really embrace that. And that's what I would like to do today is just embrace that and, and just take a step back and say, this is good for the sport. It's a free agent signing, a big free agent. And the PFL are looking with their eyes wide open, foot on the gas pedal to go full steam ahead and just continue to make this bigger and bigger and bigger. And for that, I think we need to be grateful rather than resentful of, for whatever reason. It's easy to be resentful. Being grateful is a lot harder. I take a quick drink, and then we can move on. Because I think uh, I think that uh, kind of sums it up. And I'll be talking to uh, Eric Nixick uh, later today about this uh, this deal. Not sure if it's going to be part of this show or part of the interview edition, but I might I might tack it onto the end of this show, just so that you can kind of hear what Francis Ngannou's coach has to say about all of this. But it's been a very interesting couple days in uh, mixed martial arts, and I think this certainly is uh, the biggest story um, that we've had in MMA in quite some time. And uh, again, I think it's probably the uh, biggest free agent signing in in MMA history, unless there's an obvious one I'm forgetting. I know Fedor going to strike force was a big deal, but and you know Randy Couture leaving the UFC. Arlovsky going to Adrenaline. You know, there, there have been big free agent signings, but I don't know if any of them have been uh, quite to this level. All right. Let's recap this past weekend. We had Jardino Rosenstroik against Jailton Almeida. It was at the Spectrum Center. It set a uh, new fight night attendance record for uh, domestic fight nights in the UFC at 18,712 attendees, a gate of 2.09 million. And I went back and looked that gate number is basically on par with pre-pandemic pay-per-views that took place outside of Vegas or New York. So, like, if you go and look at the gate for, like, Poirier versus Holloway and Izzy versus Gastelum, that card in Atlanta, it's like a very similar gate, which is pretty remarkable for a card headlined by Jailton Almeida and Jarzinho Rosenstrike. No disrespect to those guys, but we're not talking about two titles on the line. Let's break down that fight. Jailton Almeida does what Jailton Almeida does. Takes down Jarzinho Rosenstroik, takes zero damage in the process, 
gets a submission in the very first round, 3 minutes and 43 seconds. Let's look at Jelton Almeida's career so far, shall we? So since joining the UFC, he has absorbed two significant strikes. So he has landed more takedowns, he has more wins, he has more sub submission attempts than he does significant strikes absorbed in his five UFC fights. I mean, that's remarkable. This guy's on an absolute freight train right now. Now, after this fight, the one that I called for was Almeida versus Blades. Because I would love to see how Almeida looks against a guy that can actually grapple. And when you look up the ladder in the UFC, in the heavyweight division, I mean, he called for Taito Ivasa. I mean, I hate to say it, but I think that he wins that fight fairly easily against Taito Ivasa. Sergei Spivak's an interesting one, more of a grappler. I think Volkov, he beats fairly easily if he's able to just take Volkov down and submit him. I mean, Volkov, that has shown to be something of his kryptonite. Tom Aspinall, I'm curious to see how he looks in his return. Another guy that I think would be an interesting fight. And then there's Blades. I think Stipe has one fight left against John Jones, and John Jones might have one fight left against Stipe. There's Sergei Pavlovich, and there's Surreal Gan. Now, if you really want to elevate Jelton Almeida, you have him headline Paris against Cyril Gan, number one contender, but I don't know if they're willing to throw him in, you know, into that sort of deep end just yet. Not that, it's not that he wouldn't be able to handle it. We saw what John Jones did to Cyril Gan when it came to the grappling. But it's a matter of whether or not they think he's ready to compete for the title yet, because if he beats Cyril Gan, he's basically the number one contender. I think Pavlovich would be an interesting matchup for him as well, but Pavlovich has more of a wrestling background than uh, Cyril Gan does. So there are just a lot of uh, moving parts now at heavyweight and a lot to look forward to. And I think that uh, watching Almeida dominate all of these heavyweights and continue to work his way up the ladder is a great sign for this division. He's in his prime right now, 31 years of age, about to turn 32. Prime years for a heavyweight and uh, just had another phenomenal victory. Co-main event, Johnny Walker defeats Anthony Smith, 29-28 on one card, 30-27 on the two others. Yeah, this was... Uh... Kind of an uninspired performance from both guys, but I'll say this about Johnny Walker. There was a time where I was worried about him becoming a bit of a rudimentary fighter and not really embracing the gifts that he has, the crazy athleticism that he has, his power. I thought that John Kavanaugh was turning him into kind of a boring fighter. But I think after this fight, we're starting to see him finally be able to fuse the more technical side of his game with the more explosive side of his game. I thought that he did that very well. He's now in the top five in the light heavyweight division. And I think a lot of people had given up on Johnny Walker because he comes into the UFC, wins three in a row against Khalil Roundtree Jr., Justin Ledette, and Misha Zirkinov. And everybody's saying, this guy is the next guy. Three, there were three first-round knockouts in a row, KO or TKO. They end up putting him against Corey Anderson in a fight that could have been potentially a title eliminator at that time. Not really sure if it was quite there, but it was, it was the make-or-break fight for him. Loses that fight and then loses three of his next four. I think at that point in time, everybody kind of looked at Johnny Walker and said, well, this guy is uh, certainly not going to be a contender in this division. It's We, we saw his best when he hits that ceiling and faces some of these top guys, he can't get it done. That was as early as last year. I mean, we're talking February 2022. He gets knocked out by Jamal Hill in the first round. Since then, 
wins over Iwan Kudelaba, Paul Craig, and uh, now Anthony Smith, who's, uh, I think, the most difficult fighter that he's faced during this win streak, of course. But he looked very good against Anthony Smith, made it look fairly easy. After the fight, jumps out of the crowd, out of the octagon, rather, and gets face-to-face with Jamal, Jamal Hill and says, seems like it was a polite exchange. It was like, you know, I, I want to face you again. I respect you. Something along those lines. And uh, Johnny Walker, also 31 years of age in his prime right now, light heavyweight. Or at least uh, entering his prime, probably, you could say. And I think he's, he has some good fights ahead of him. I think that if you look at the light heavyweight rankings right now, you've got him at number five. I think him versus Rakic is a great fight. I think him versus Jan Bojovic is a phenomenal fight. Him versus Ankalaev is an interesting fight, although one, I'm not sure how entertaining it would be. And him versus Yuri, I mean, forget about it. It would be unbelievable. But I think that Yuri, of course, is going to, as soon as he comes back, he's fighting for the title. But just a lot to like about Johnny Walker right now and his prospects in this division. And I'm happy for him. He's a nice guy. Seems to really respect the sport. Is getting better, it seems. Is, is becoming a smarter fighter. Originally was kind of relying on his crazy athleticism and his power. Needed some refinement that I think John Kavanaugh has given that to him. So uh, kudos to Johnny Walker. I think he looked great uh, in recent fights. Perhaps the uh, fight that made the most waves on this card was Ian Machado Gary stopping Daniel Rodriguez in the first round. Nobody has ever beaten Rodriguez by KO or TKO. Scores the head kick and punches finish against Daniel Rodriguez. And not just that, he called his shot. He was on with Pete Carroll last week, or uh, in recent weeks, rather, and said he thinks it's going to be a head kick, right head kick, he said, right head kick knockout. And the right head kick is what set up the whole thing. So Ian Machado Gary now ranked 13 at welterweight. It's funny. I mean, he's so brash, so confident. It's very similar to the Conor effect where people are like, oh, one day somebody's going to put this guy in his place. Knock this guy down a couple pegs. He thinks too much of himself. We've seen that happen with Conor McGregor and with a lot of other fighters that have been kind of brash. We're seeing it with, right now with Paddy Pimblett in the uh, lightweight division. But Ian Gary did what he said he was going to do. And now he's ranked in the, uh, the top 15 and I, I think that he is a really skilled fighter. I think at 25 years of age, really the sky's the limit for him. We haven't really seen his grappling tested just yet at a high level. I think that's always going to be a question mark, especially in a uh, grappling-heavy division like welterweight. But I think that win, especially how he won that fight, speaks volumes about his upside in the sport. Perhaps he'll never be a champion. I don't know. I think we have to see his growth. But it's impossible now to say that this guy's not the real deal. He belongs in that top 15. He's going to be facing tough opponents from here on out. Lots of killers at welterweight. But again, only 25 years old. Turning 26 at the end of the year. Training out at Killcliffe FC and now going actually to Brazil with his wife and son. Where he's going to live there for a while. He said he bought a one-way ticket. And he's just going to go and live the lifestyle of training in Brazil. And somebody mentioned this to me on social media. I thought it was interesting. It's... One thing about Connor was that he never really left his comfort zone. He never really stepped outside much in terms of his MMA training from his camp in Dublin and coach John Kavanaugh. We haven't really seen that with him. But you look at Ian Machado Gary, and it looks like he's willing to, to 
lose in practice day in and day out in order to get better. I mean, at Killcliffe, I'm sure he's losing a lot of these situations against the likes of Gilbert Burns, Vicente Luque, some of these, these top welterweights in the world that he's training with day in and day out, and top middleweights in the world, really. Because that's a stacked camp over at Team Killcliffe. So, I mean, really, kudos to him. Phenomenal win. Loved speaking with him last week. Loved hearing his confidence and bravado because he's able to back it up. And he's a guy that has said this too. And all the, ones, all the big talkers say that, say that. You know, they say, I can talk as much as I want. I need to back it up in the cage. I need to win. If I don't win, it all goes away. Patty Pimblett says the same thing. Now, Ian Gary's not quite as like weird and quirky as Patty Pimblett. But I think he's got the higher ceiling. Uh, I'm not sure if he's going to become as big of a fan favorite. But I think from a fighting standpoint that we're going to see him in the mix at welterweight for some time to come. Carlos Alberg defeats Ihor Poteria via first round TKO. Kind of called his own shot. Finished Poteria and just walked off waiting for the referee to stop it. And then the referee saw Poteria and was like, yeah, probably should have stopped that one. But uh, Carlos Alberg gets the win. Uh, Alex Morono defeats Tim Means. Uh, Means won the first round on the cards, but uh, Morono bounces back, scores a submission win in the second round. The ageless wonder, Matt Brown, 42 years of age, scores a sick knockout over Court McGee in the first round. I mean, hey, the, the, the power doesn't go away. Maybe the speed does. Maybe the instincts do a little bit. Maybe those slow down. But Matt Brown still has that equalizer in his hands and was able to utilize that to defeat Court McGee. Uh, Carl Williams defeats uh, Chase Sherman. Uh, kind of an easy victory for him. Not, not the most exciting fight, but also did show that Carl Williams was able to win a fight on the feet against a striking-based fighter uh, without using the takedown all that much. Uh, Douglas Silva D'Andrage defeats Cody Stamen 29-28 on all three cards. And I know that they're appealing this on the Stamen side, and I, I can't really understand why. Now, there was kind of an... It's hard to even call it an upkick. Cody Stamen was grounded... And he was in the middle of taking Andrade down. And Andrade kind of pushed Stamen's face with his foot. Which, I'm not really sure if that is legal or not. But Stamen protested. Referee called a timeout. Warned Andrade. Reset them to standing and continued. And it's hard to say whether or not you can determine that Stamen had fully established the position. Now, you can't award position if you're a referee. This is where it gets weird. If you're a referee, you have to determine in that moment whether or not Stamen had completed the takedown, whether Stamen had top position. At that point, you can put them back into that position, but you can't award position. So if the referee didn't believe that Stamen had finished the takedown, had, had gotten, you know, had basically established control, he doesn't have to give that position back. So the Stamen camp was angry about that. Stamen looked confused. But... At the end of the day, this is more of a scoring criteria problem because you have Stamen with a really dominant third round that was, was not a 10-8, but it was definitely the best round of the fight in terms of the most dominant side, I guess you could say, of any of the three rounds. Like That was a firm Cody Stamen third round. But the first two rounds, D'Andrade won them by a small margin, right? And that's why when you look at like Ryzen scoring... You can give that fight to Stamen. 
But if you're looking at like round by round scoring criteria, that's a 29-28 for Douglas Silva de Andrade, and there's not really much that you can appeal there. That appeal is going to get shut down mighty fast. Even if the referee should have put them back into that position on the ground, he doesn't have to. So even if you do appeal it on those grounds, you're not really going to do it, get anything there. So that was a weird one, but not as weird as our next fight. We had Mandy Bohm against Jiyeon Kim. Now, I could speak about this fight at length because so much weird stuff happened. The problem for me is that a lot of the protocol was done, I wouldn't say improperly, but strangely. So we'll start with the first piece of protocol. End of the second round, Mandy Bohm's on top. Jion Kim kind of frustratedly kicks her after the bell from bottom. You know, clear, clearly broke the rules. Should not have thrown that strike. Referee had already signaled the round was over. was in between them, and she still threw a kick after the referee had been kind of in there. So to begin the third round, referee steps in and deducts a point. Now, the weird thing about that is, if you're looking at the scorecards, that should be deducted from the second round and not the third round. Again, so this is just procedure that I think could have been better. Because... That took pl- the 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 third round doesn't begin until after the one minute break in between after the, whatever the the minute between rounds. That's when the third round starts. As soon as the the clock starts, after they've left the corners, that's when the third round starts. So if you see doctors come into the cage at the beginning of the third round, check a fighter's eye or something, and they say that they can't continue, that ends up being a Stoppage five minutes into the second round. It's like a technical... Yeah, it's like a TKO. It's a technical stoppage. So that's the first point. That that deduction should have been from the second round. Not that it makes any difference whatsoever because a deduction is a deduction. You're taking away one point regardless of where that happens. Then, about a, I think it was a minute and 55 seconds into the third round, uh, Jion Kim lands, I believe it was a knee to her grounded opponent, um, Mandy Bohm. Bohm kind of milks it, can't continue. Says she, she's not able to continue. So at that point in time, it's going to a technical decision. And the referee then has to determine the intent of the knee. If, if they felt the knee was intentional, then it could be a disqualification. If they determine it to be unintentional, then the referee has to use their discretion to either take a point or not take a point. The referee decided to take a point. However, he waited some time before he made that determination, and the scorecards had already been handed in. So then the scorecards have to be handed back to the judges who need to change their scorecards. Now, the silly thing about that is the commission could easily just take the scorecards and deduct a point. But I guess the judges have to sign it also. So they, because they have to sign it, I'm not really sure, to be honest. I think that certain commissions want the judges to deduct the point themselves when they're filling out their round, and other commissions will do it at the score table. They'll deduct the point so that the judge just scores it 10-9, whatever, and then they worry about it. I guess the Carolina Commission has it so that the judges actually need to mark off that particular deduction. So they go ahead and do that, but it takes a little bit of time. And then the other part about that is I've spoken to judges in the past about 10-10 rounds because nobody seems to know what a 10-10 round is. 
The third round of that fight, you could argue, was a 10-10 round because it did not get completed. It's an incomplete round. And the data to really determine who won that round, I mean, obviously, Kim had control. She landed two strikes, two significant strikes, according to the official stats. But she was controlling that fight. She landed some... The only one who landed any strikes was Kim. But not a whole lot happened. So if a judge feels like they don't have enough data to score a round as a completed round, that's when 10-10s can sometimes come into play. So the way that I would have scored this is I would have had round one, 10-9 Kim. I would have been in the minority there as two judges had it for Bohm, which I don't get at all. Kim rocked Bohm at the start of that round and then had really the best submission. There were three submission attempts in the round, two from Bohm, one from Kim. And Kim's was probably the deepest of all of them. It was a neck crank towards the end of the round. I would have given that round to Kim, but be that as it may, I had it scored 10-9 Kim. Uh, I guess 10-9 Kim for the second round as well because they, they put the deductions in the third round. And then in the third round, I would have had it a 10-10, which would have reverted to a 10-8 Bohm and made it a draw. But really, the only way you can score that third round is a 10-10 or a 10-9 for Kim because Bohm did not, didn't do anything in that round. You can't score that round for Bohm because you got fouled. That's not how it works. So ultimately, Bohm ended up getting a split technical split decision, 28-27, 28-27, and then 27-28 going the way of Kim. Weird fight. Very weird fight. Brian Battle defeats Gabe Green 14 seconds into the first round. I do not know what Gabe Green was doing in this fight. It looked like someone mashing a gamepad. Like he was just rushing forward, throwing punch, 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 and just got clean knocked out. And Gabe Green has a good chin. So maybe that maybe he just wanted to trust his chin in that situation and didn't think that Battle had much power. But he found out the hard way that that was uh, untrue. And Battle ended up getting a performance bonus even though he missed weight. Kind of a discretionary performance of the night bonus, you would call it. But missed weight and got a bonus. Uh, and Tynera Lisboa, I mean, looked phenomenal against Jessica Rose Clark. Wins via rear naked choke third round. Um, she's got a, a good future in this women's bantamweight division. Um, Kim and Jessica Rose Clark have since been released from the UFC um, or are no longer on the UFC roster page, um, according to UFC Roster Watch, the uh, Twitter account that uh, has an automated API. So it looks like their days in the UFC are done. I feel bad for Ji Young Kim because I actually think she's a, a solid fighter who never really showed her potential in the cage. From, from what I hear, she's just a killer in the gym and is always sparring and looks great. And she fought this fight on the torn ACL. Decided she wanted to take the fight. Seemingly not a wise move. But, I mean, she was winning that fight, in my opinion. Not for those fouls. She probably wins that fight. All right. Or at least gets a draw. But uh, there you have it. Performance bonuses. Almeida, Machado Gary, Carlos Alberg, Matt Brown, and Brian Battle. So that uh, puts that in the rearview mirror for us. I also want to take a moment to talk about Bellator. This is going to be a bit of a soapbox rant, so uh, bear with me here. So Bellator has an event, event in France, Paris, France, this past week. Uh, last Friday, I believe it was. Headlined by Fabian Edwards versus Gegard Mousasi. Nice win for Fabian Edwards. I don't really want to recap the event because whatever. Whatever. Good event, solid, solid event. And I thought the co-main event, I may as well actually, the tournament happened. There were some tournament fights. 
So let me break those down quickly. That was a 296. Bellator 296. Musasi versus Edwards. So yeah, so uh, it was just one lightweight tournament fight, rather. Brent Primus versus Mansoor Barnawi. Uh, Primus getting a 48-47 decision across the board. I thought that was the really the right scorecards, but great fight. I thought that was a great fight. Uh, Douglas Lima defeated Costello Von Stinas in the middleweight division. He broke his losing streak. Good on Douglas Lima. And Thibaut Guti had a great knockout against uh, Kane Musa in the second round. Um, but here's what I want to talk about. So Bellator, basically in the lead-up to this event, like one day's notice, basically quietly on their website puts that if you're in Canada, you now have to order Bellator events. It costs $19, and you get a seven-day pass that allows you to watch that event, and you can watch a replay of the event for seven days. So... I'm thinking, well, you're going from YouTube, which is free. If you go on YouTube and you look at their views, you're getting about 60,000 viewers per event over the course of the time that it's been uploaded. So not not live, but over the course of the time it's been uploaded, which is, whatever, solid number. So now they're putting this paywall in front of the events. $19 per event for Bellator. Now to me, whatever, they're well within their rights to do this. They can do what they want. As somebody who wants to see MMA grow in this country, I think making it more cost prohibitive for people to view your events or making it less accessible is a death knell in this country. Because I'm sure that Bellator already does not have a a great stronghold in Canada, but they've got good Canadian talent on the roster. I think that when you look at them putting that sort of a uh, paywall on it, it makes it really difficult to support them in this country to, to watch Bellator events. Namely because I watched the event on this new platform, Bellator360.com, and it was trash. It was buffering every eight seconds. I couldn't rewind. So you have no ability to rewind to earlier in the card. If you miss something, you can't pause it and be like, okay, I'm going to come back and watch it later. The platform is just terrible. So... If you do have somebody who's a big fan of Bellator and wants to watch the events and are willing to pay 20 bucks for the event and say, you know what, I want to support Bellator, 20 bucks, I'm going to watch their events. I, I, I think they've put on a great product. And I, I'm not arguing about that. I actually think in the last two years, Bellator has stepped up their product a lot. Their prelims are all way better than they used to be. They've galvanized a lot of solid talent. You've got some really strong champions right now. I think that the Pettis versus Pitbull fight coming up is an amazing fight. I'll be watching them. I'm a media member. I I have to watch these events. I like to cover these events. I mean, if I stopped watching them and stopped covering them, I don't think anybody at TSN is going to be like, hey, why aren't you watching Bellator events anymore? I don't think they'd care, but I like the product. I like watching it, and I like being able to report on everything happening in the world of MMA. That's just like me. That's the initiative that I, I take. Because it's important to me that big fights get coverage. But if you are somebody who is willing to pay the $20 and you get on this platform and it, it is as bad for them as it was for me, oh, they're not coming back. They're going to find another way to watch it. So not only are you not getting their money, 
that they want to give you in the future because the platform is no good, you're also giving them a bad consumer experience while they're trying to watch your product. I also couldn't watch it on my Fire Stick. I have a Fire Stick attached to my TV. I wasn't able to watch it. I don't have a Chromecast, so I wasn't able to cast it. So you're making it, you're making me have to jump through hoops to watch your product. Especially this one, which, no disrespect, was one of the weaker cards. It's in the middle of the day on a Friday. So if I'm a Bellator fan, first off, you're not really getting that message out to people. So people were probably looking on YouTube where they got the prelims, the main cards nowhere to be found, and they're already turned off. They go to your website to try to find out where to watch. They now need to pay 20 bucks. If they then, at that point, say, okay, well, I'm annoyed, but I'll pay my 20 bucks, and then they get a bad user experience, they gone. They ain't coming back. So I would recommend that Bellator steps it up and comes up with another solution because Canadians are not going to stick around if you're going to be doing this. And I don't blame them. They'll find other ways to watch it if they really want to watch it, but they ain't paying 20 bucks for a bad customer, customer experience. Anyhow, there's, a, there's my, my soapbox for, for today about Bellator. Because again, I like what they put out. Like, I think they put out a lot of great fights. I think it's quality competition. And I think a lot of their champions could contend with UFC champions. Like, I think that their product is that good. But if you're going to make it difficult for people to watch it, they're not going to watch it. All right. UFC fight night this weekend. Mackenzie Dern versus Angela Hill is your main event. You got a co-main Edmund Shabazian against Fluffy, Anthony Hernandez, Fluffy. Let's take a look at uh, some of the odds for this. Brought to you by our friends over at FanDuel Canada. Dern a minus 186 favorite against Angela Hill, who's plus 144. I think I like that number. I think this is an interesting fight because it's it's like the standard Mackenzie Dern fight. If she gets you down for even a second, you're in trouble. And I think in this situation, the Dern inside the distance prop at plus 163. I don't know what the Dern by submission prop is going to be, but I think that's the way you got to I think that that is the more likely outcome here. But personally, I don't know if I touch it. I don't know if I really believe in the, if I still believe in the skills of uh, Mackenzie Dern all that much, especially her ability to get it to the ground. Angela Hill's takedown defense, 77%, which is quite high. She's fought a lot of wrestling-based fighters, grappling-based fighters in the UFC. So I think Dern is probably the right side here, but I would stay away from that one. Uh, Anthony Hernandez, minus 280. Edmund Shabazian, plus 210. I think you've got to go with Shabazian here. I think he bounced back recently. Um, he's training at a much better camp than he used to. Had that nice knockout win over Dolce Lunjambula. Anthony Hernandez is a solid fighter. and He's on a great win streak right now. Three-fight win streak, including a submission over Rodolfo Vieira, who's one of the very best grapplers in the UFC. But if I can get that big of a dog price on Edmund Shabazian, I can't pass on that. I think you got to take the young up-and-coming fighter who's refining his game at a good camp, 25 years old over at Extreme Couture now. Very surprised that he's this big of an underdog, to be perfectly honest. Uh, Lupi Godinez, minus 170. Emily Ducati, plus 130. Ducati looked great when she first came to the UFC, but she's kind of disappointed since then, um, in my opinion. Um, this fight's at 120 pounds, kind of a short-notice fight. 
lost to Angela Hill in her last fight. But in her debut against uh, Jessica Panay, I thought she looked quite good. Um, I think Lupita is, again, kind of probably the right side here, to be perfectly frank. At minus 170, she fought recently, so she's, you know, coming off a fight. It was a you know, kind of a knock him down drag him out fight, to be honest. Uh, lots of standing, and um, I don't know how healed she'll be. These quick turnarounds have not been great for her. So, again, use your discretion on that one. I'm not sure. I think that Godinez wins the fight, but I think that line might be a little bit too wide. Uh, Joaquin Buckley, minus 215. Andre Fialyu, plus 164. Man, this is a tough one to call also. Fialyu just has that big power. Um, but Buckley also has a solid chin. I think he's the more well-rounded fighter. Yeah, stopped by Chris Curtis in his last fight. Now he's training with Chris Curtis, so that's kind of cool. Um, he's moved over to uh, Extreme Couture under the uh, tutelage of Coach Eric Nixick. And um, Andre Fialyu was on a massive roll and then lost two in a row. So um, he's taken some time off. He's coming back and uh, taking on Joaquin Buckley. I think Buckley's probably the right side here from a... a who's going to win perspective, but I think that you're getting solid odds on Fialyu. If you are going to take Fialyu, you might as well just take him to win by KO, depending on what the odds are, if you can get good odds on that, but uh, it's probably a pass for me. You've got Mahashata taking on Slava Claus. Slava Borsha, Borshoi, I think it's pronounced. Borshoi. Borshoi is a minus 170 favorite. Mahashata plus 132. I think Borshoi is starting to come into his own a little bit. Um, I would probably lean him in this fight, but this is one I would certainly not touch. Uh, Diego Fajera, minus 156. Michael Johnson, plus 122. Uh, I think that you're getting great value on Fajera here, to be perfectly honest. Um, Fajera is not that far removed from being a top 15 lightweight in the world. I know he's 38 years old. He's on the older side, but how old is Michael Johnson? It's not like Michael Johnson's a spring chicken. Here are his losses for Diego Fajera. For, he was ranked, and he's lost three in a row, but here's who he's lost to. Benil Dariush, Gregor Gillespie, and Mateusz Gam- Gamrot. So these are all like ranked good fighters. Took all of 2022 off, and now he's back against uh, Michael Johnson, who's 36 years old. So he's, Michael Johnson's turning 37 in a couple weeks. So they're relatively close in age. I just think Ferreira's the, the, the more well-rounded fighter and has more ways to win this fight. I would uh, lean Ferreira in this fight. Uh, Karolina Kovalkiewicz is a minus 146 favorite. Come back on Vanessa Demopoulos, plus 114. Um, yeah, I think that if this fight stays on the feet, Carolina's going to win it, no problem. But if Demopoulos can take her down, that's where I think a submission is very possible. I think that you probably either want to take the submission prop for Demopoulos, or you want to just take Carolina straight up. Um, or even by decision, depending on what kind of a price you can get on that. But uh, I, I think Carolina is probably the side in that one. Uh, Orion Koshi, Koski, he, he told me it's pronounced Koshe, is the actual pronounce, pronunciation from uh, his family lineage. But uh, he goes by Koski. Minus 140, Gilbert Urbina plus 110. So nice to see Gilbert Urbina get another uh, UFC fight after losing on the Ultimate Fighter to Brian Battle. This is his first fight since then. It's been uh, a year and a half. Interesting matchup, one that I, I, I have trouble picking aside because I think that how much Urbina's improved over the last year and a half, we don't really know. That always makes it difficult for me. 
Uh, Rodrigo Nascimento, minus 196. Illyria Latifi, plus 152. If you can ever get Illyria Latifi at a dog price in heavyweight fights, I think you kind of got to take it. You know what he's going to do. He's going to take Nascimento down. Nascimento's a good grappler, but uh, Latifi's got no neck. It's not, not like he's an easy guy to tap out. And I think he's just going to sit on him and, and lay ground and pound on him. I mean, to get Latifi at that kind of a price, I think you kind of have to take it. I think Nascimento's a good fighter, too. But uh, I like the value. Uh, Nick Fiore, minus 138. Chase Hooper, plus 108. Hooper moving up to 155. Um... Fiore has not fought great competition. He trains at a really good camp with the guys uh, over in the uh, New England cartel. But uh, I haven't seen enough from him. I, I would probably go with the Hooper sub prop, to be honest, at plus 350. If you can get it at that price, that's probably the way I would go. I think that's Hooper's best path to victory. Um, and I would lean Hooper in this fight. Natalia Silva, a massive favorite, minus 900 against Victoria Leonardo, plus 520. The one thing that we've seen from Leonardo is she's incredibly durable. So I would take the uh, Silva decision prop if you can get a good price on that. And uh, finally, Takashi Sato against Temba Garimbo. It's even money. It probably should be even money. I don't really have a uh, a great read on this one. Probably pass altogether on that one. And there's your somewhat detailed uh, breakdown of UFC Fight Night. <laughs> Hill versus Dern. Or is it Dern versus Hill? Dern versus Hill. That's uh, this weekend. And uh, next weekend, no UFC event. So, uh, bit of a, uh, we're going to get a nice week off in between, which is, is nice. Because we've been probably like eight or nine straight weeks of uh, UFC fights. So, always nice to get that, that hit the reset button and uh, recalibrate. And then we can head into Vancouver in uh, three weeks for the UFC's return to Canada. Looking forward to that. I don't think if there's anything I, I haven't touched on uh, just yet before we uh, hear from Extreme Couture coach Eric Nixick. Uh, the Conor McGregor documentary is out, out this week. That that will be interesting to see. He told, uh, I believe, TMZ that uh, an announcement for when his fight with Michael Chandler is going down is going to be coming soon. So... Stay tuned for that. He's still not in the USADA pool as of the last update to the database. Uh, Cedric Dunbe signed with the PFL. So we have two, probably the two biggest Cameroonian combat sports athletes maybe ever. Unless there's somebody obvious that I'm forgetting. Signing with the PFL in uh, one week. Kind of overshadowed by the big signing of Francis Ngannou. But uh, Cedric Dunbe is someone I had hoped we'd see in the UFC. He had signed with the UFC. And then uh, he had told Ariel Hawani this week there was actually something popped up on his MRI that... Uh, has since they've since done more MRIs and it hasn't popped up again. And uh, there was also some sort of weird loophole with the French commission ended up not sticking around with the UFC and got, uh, he says he got 10 times more than what the UFC offered to go to the PFL. I can't wait to see him compete in the PFL's tournament. He's got to be a dark horse from the go. If this guy, Cedric Dumbe wins that tournament, this guy's going to be a massive star for the PFL. Like this guy's got star power written all over him. Dynamic striker, one of the best kickboxers in the world, probably in his weight class, the best kickboxer in the world. And uh, moving over to MMA, talks a big game, has a nice smile, good attitude. Happy to see Dumbe land uh, at a major promotion. I think that's about it. So why don't we hear from the uh, coach of Francis Ngannou?
and someone who's been along with him on this journey. He is the head coach, I believe, at the Extreme Couture. He is Eric Nixick, and he joins me now on the TSN MMA show. He is the coach for Francis Ngannou, who just signed with the PFL. He is, of course, in this space. Doesn't really need much of an introduction, but he's the head coach for Extreme Couture, Eric Nixick. Probably a bit of a whirlwind day for you. How long have you known about this? Because Francis came out, I think, today and said that it was kind of verbally agreed upon two months ago. Uh, I knew for a couple of weeks now. Um, I knew officially, like he he put pen to paper. So uh, a little backstory for you. I was I was going to the bathroom and he kept trying to FaceTime me and I kept declining him. And then finally I answered. And I'm like, "What's up, man?" And he goes, "He goes, I'm I'm putting pen to paper. I want to be on FaceTime with you when we do it." I'm, like, I'm going to the bathroom. So he goes, "No, we got to do it now." So um, he was super excited, man. And and I've honestly I've never seen him happier. Uh, probably, you know, when he beat Stipe and won the world title, he was, he was obviously very happy then. But, uh, you know, since I, I feel like this was the, one of the happiest moments I, I've seen him have in a long time. What do you think of the deal? Uh, it seems like there's a lot of things that are contingent on the success of the PFL overall, but it basically is everything that he's been looking to have in terms of what he wanted from the UFC. I mean, to be honest with you, Aaron, it's, it's his deal. It's what he wants. And as long as he's happy, I'm, I'm happy for him. You know, I think we've all we all understand what the UFC brings to the table. We understand that the the level of competition that they have, um, and that just wasn't everything that you know the money and and the pay per views and whatever. I don't know, like just they just couldn't meet eye to eye on certain things. Um, but I support him for whatever makes him happy, and and I think that's the thing that people get lost in translation with this whole thing is is that this this man wanted certain things to be done. He wanted to be a part of a business, and uh, that's what he got with the PFL. They they came with him. Uh, or they came to the table with him with the, with things I think that just moved him emotionally more than the money did. And that one of them was the PFL Africa thing. That was the first thing they brought to the table for him. And I think that was one, one of the main things that really motivated him to sign. What is it about Francis that makes him different? You don't see a lot of fighters that really take the sort of principal stance where they need to have certain things that, that make them feel, I guess, kind of at ease from a, a soul perspective, I guess you could call it. You know, he, he feels like he needs to have something that is able to make him feel like he's doing something right in this process. Why is Francis that way? And why, why does that make him so unique? Well, I think it's his DNA. I think it's where he's from. I think it's his, it's his upbringing and his history. You know, not many of us can, can attest to where he's been and what he's done in his life and how he got here. So, you know, I remember having a conversation with him one time uh, when we were in Austin, we were, we were doing the Joe Rogan show and, um, you know, he, there was a guy that was sleeping in front of our hotel and on the street. And he had this moment where he was speaking about how that was him once. And he was, you know, we got to the hotel, he wanted the presidential suite and he wanted this and he wanted that. And then he saw the man outside that was sleeping on the streets and it, he almost had like this kind of relevation of like, man, that was me once. And I, I should be happy with everything that I have and, you know, be proud of where I come from. And I, I think that's the thing that people just miss is that. You know, he's, he's he's not like most people from the society, you know, uh, what he wants and, and what motivates him is very different than what might motivate one of us. So um, I'm just happy for him. And I, I stand by what his message has been and, you know, what he's wanted to accomplish. And he's happy. And that's the main thing. So I think this just really just, you know, the type of individual that he is is very different than most. So it looks like MMA is kind of off the table for him this year. He wants to take a boxing match of some sort. Um, how involved are you in his coaching for boxing? And 
in a perfect world, who do you like? You know, who would you like to see him box against this year? If, if you had the choice, if you could handpick an opponent for him, who would you like it to be? So I'll, I'll be involved to whatever capacity that he needs me to. You know, so myself and Dewey Cooper have been holding pads for him and working with him and doing everything else. Um, we've we've sat down and discussed actively who you know who what coaches we might want to bring in or uh, to help him with the boxing element. And we all agree that I think that he should have something along those lines in, in a true boxing coach. Um, and let's not forget, you know, Dewey Cooper comes from that background. He has a lot of boxers underneath him, so he's quite capable of doing it. Uh, the one thing that I think, you know, people have to understand is there's not too many uh, coaches that can hold pads for Francis, and that's myself and Dewey. So um, if there is a boxing coach that is brought in, you know, he would have to be capable of doing those things for him. And if not, we would have to be the guys to help him out and, and um, you know, kind of facilitate the, the pads. Um, if to answer the, the opponent question, I mean, you know, it's really up to him. I, I know the Wilder one was the one that kind of really uh, moved the needle for him that he thought would be the, the, the one that made the most sense. Um, Anthony Joshua was, was a name getting kicked around, uh, obviously the Tyson Fury fight, but you know, I, I think those fights are, are going to be tough to come by the one that did make the most amount of sense. And the one that showed the most amount of interest was Wilder. So, you know, if that's something that they can pull off, then I, I hope that they get that done. I want to ask you something from a coaching perspective. So if sure. Deontay Wilder said, I'm going to go to the UFC and I'm going to fight against the heavyweight champion in the UFC, like th there's just no way that anybody would believe that Deontay Wilder could win that fight for the most part. And, like, there's always the chance of a, of a lucky punch, but th the learning curve is so steep. Why is it that mixed martial artists believe that they can go into boxing and face the absolute best of that sport and succeed? Is there something that I'm missing that would allow a fighter to be able to, to go that far into the deep end of another sport and, and be able to contend uh, against a fighter like that. No, I think you're just talking about competitors. I think you're talking about people that want to test themselves and, and, and utilize the best attributes of their skill set. And that's obviously Francis's power. And he wants to see how it translates into boxing. It's always been a passion of his. Um, why he even got into combat sports is because of boxing. I don't think it's any slight to the talent pool of, of what boxing brings to the table. He's not dismissive of what they bring to the table. I, I think he understands the challenges that are ahead of him if he decides just to box. But remember, it's just it's just one element now rather than the you know the kickboxing, the wrestling, the jiu-jitsu, and everything else. He gets to focus on on just the boxing side alone. Now, in that defense, man, these guys have been boxing since they're they were kids, right? Like, there's a reason why they're so damn good. And, and by no means do we think we're just going to show up in box and just go and beat the likes of, uh, you know, Tyson Fury and Joshua and everybody else. Right. But it's the challenge that he that he's looking forward to. And, and obviously the pay, the, the, the paydays for him and, and all these guys that are, 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 are transferring over into boxing, they're getting paid very well to do so. So I, I think that's uh, also some of the intrigue as well. I like the four ounce gloves idea that Tyson Fury proposed. Boxing with four ounce gloves. Like I think if you're gonna, you gotta meet in the middle somewhere if you want to make this a competitive fight. I love that idea. I mean, it gives us it definitely gives us a better shot, you know. So um, if he's down for four ounce gloves, let's do that. Well, uh, let's see how that plays out. Now, in terms of a PFL opponent, what do you think is the best case scenario for him in terms of somebody that he could face outside of the UFC? Like if if you were to say Francis versus the best heavyweight in the world, not in the UFC, who is that heavyweight in your opinion in MMA? Um, you know, I think there's a couple guys, uh, anti in, uh, in the PFL. Um, I definitely think for doom poses, uh, some issues. I think there's some guys that you can possibly cross promote with, you know, because, uh, Bellator has been open to cross promote. 
Um, I don't think one FC would be willing to cross remote, but I think maybe you can get some guys over from Risen. But I, I think the one that definitely the intrigue um, and, and a guy who's been a world champion and a guy who's a specialty at his at his craft is uh, is Fabricio Verdu. What do you think we'll be saying about Francis in five years? Obviously, legacy is important for him. But at the same time, you know, a lot of people think, oh, this is terrible for his legacy. He's not going to be able to fight John Jones. He's not going to be able to get those wins. I feel like the ceiling for his legacy is much higher with what he's doing now versus what he could have possibly done in the UFC because of the kind of principal stance he's, he's taken, what this could mean for fighters long term, and what he's able to do outside of the UFC. I think, you know, while I do think that a win over John Jones would have been so huge for, for his fighting legacy, for his legacy as a man, I think that the ceiling here is just so high. And and that's just it, Aaron. You nailed it. You know, it's about what he wants to be generated and written as his legacy, not ours. Not what, you know, Twitter says or, or what, you know, MMA media says. It's, it's what he wants and what he wants to, his legacy remembered by. And I think he's a trailblazer, you know. You know, it, a lot of people don't understand a lot of his backstory and, and the way that his his country has, you know, supported him and the way they've, they've held him up. And he he brings a lot of hope. He brings a lot of hope to a continent that I felt when we beat Stipe Miocic, I felt the love from a continent, right? And I'm just, I'm just his coach. Um, when he lost to Stipe the first time, you know, he told me a story that he was, he was so scared to go back home because he thought he failed, you know, his country. And when he got home, there was a, there was a parade for him. They celebrated him. They, they were so happy for him and off of a loss. And that told that he told me that, that like really helped him get through a time when he knew that you know he he didn't he didn't win a fight so he knew no matter what happened win lose or draw that he had the support of a whole country and then could you imagine how they how they uh re, you know took him in when he won uh, and that was all of us that was all of us as one big family so you know the moment I met him he's always had a purpose and a cause to to help grow his country not only in MMA he does a lot of things behind the scenes that a lot of people don't know about like he he started like a, a vocational school for kids in his in in Cameroon. To help build like their social media content, to understand how to do things to where they all they really need is internet, right? They they can be, they can be uh, their own entrepreneurs, and that that's his that's his mindset. You know, he built apartment complexes out there. He's done things to help renovate the the city alone. He's brought uh, jujitsu schools there. You know, there's things he's just not sitting out and celebrating or, or saying all these things, but he's doing these things with his actions. And finally, what was your role in in all of this in terms of him um, deciding to go elsewhere? Has he leaned on you for guidance in terms of making this decision, or has it mostly just been Francis saying, "This is what I want. I'm going to go out and find, until I can go out and find it and get it." That that's what his goal has been. Like, how instrumental have you been in terms of this whole process? Just a buddy, you know, just, just, just his friend, and uh, you know, we he'll he'll call me and we'll talk and we'll kick ideas back and forth. But ultimately, this was up to him. You know, he he knew what he he you know didn't have the management. Um, he wanted to broker his own deal and, and Markel's still a part of the team. Markel's doing other stuff for him, but you know, credit to Markel, man. He, he's a great human being. And this guy took a lot of lumps for sticking up for his, his client. He was doing everything he wanted for, for what his client wanted. Francis felt it was just best for him to be the, I guess, the scapegoat or the bad guy, if, if you will, the way everybody was portraying it, but he knew exactly what he wanted in the terms that he wanted. So he went out and did it on his own. So we, we all just hung back and gave him the support he needed. We talked all the time about stuff, and I was always here for him. But that was his, man. That was his decision. And this weekend, you've got Joaquin Buckley on the, uh, the card at the, the UFC Apex now. 
How's it been for him? His last fight was against Chris Curtis. He got finished by Chris, and now he's in the gym with you guys getting better. So what's that been like? It, it's been great. Actually, we were just talking about it. I'm, I'm not cornering him. I've just been helping him. We actually brought him out for when Chris fought Gasolum. Um, he hit me up after uh, he lost to Chris and just said, hey, man, would you be willing to have me back in the gym? And I immediately said, yeah, of course, man. Like, it's business, man. You guys are prize fighters. You guys are going out and, and competing and fighting for money. There's no hard feelings on my end whatsoever. And I think that shows, um, you know, a testament to his maturity. He even said to me today, he's like, man, like, I wanted to come out and see what you guys saw, what you broke down, what areas I can improve. And, and as a coach, how can you not how can you not admire that? How can you not help out a guy? You know, he has a great team behind him and a great coaching staff. I, I was just simply, you know, helping him out with little things that maybe I saw and give him a couple of ingredients that I think might help him in fight night. All right, Coach, appreciate you as always. Look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks' time in my country, the Great White North. You've got two fighters on that Vancouver card. No better place to be than Vancouver in June. I keep telling people in, in MMA this. They, I'm not sure if they believe me, but they will once they go. My brother. A big thank you to Eric Nixick for taking the time to speak with me on a very busy day, I'm sure, for uh, him and, of course, his uh, student, Francis Ngannou, who signed with the PFL. I want to thank you for tuning into the show. It's been a good one. We'll be back next week to recap UFC Fight Night. Durden versus Hill, talk about all of the news going on in the world of mixed martial arts. Until then, be kind. Be well, and be enthusiastic. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA Show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.